0: Translation styles. There are three main styles of Bible translations, word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrase. These styles are important to understand. The translation style of any given Bible is the single biggest factor impacting what you'll read in it. That's why you can open up five different Bibles and read five different and sometimes conflicting versions of the same scripture. In our own personal studies, Understanding the translation style of our Bibles provides valuable context to the words we're reading, and insight into what we should do with those words. It's important to point out that the three translation styles, word-for-word, thought-for-thought, and paraphrase, aren't precise labels. They're more like zones along a spectrum. Some Bibles are word-for-word with some thought-for-thought tendencies, other Bibles are somewhere between a thought-for-thought and a paraphrase, and so on. In other words, The more we understand those individual styles, the better we'll understand the spectrum they exist on, and the better we'll understand the Bible we're reading. Word-for-word, formal equivalence The main focus of a word-for-word translation is preserving the wording and sentence structure of the original text. This approach is sometimes called formal equivalence. The words and structures, the form of the original text, remain as unchanged as possible in the translation. Of course, for the reasons we explored in The Difficulties of Translation, no translation can truly be word-for-word. There will always be words that don't translate perfectly, sentences with verb tenses and other rules that don't exist in English, and so on. Translators will always have to make some sacrifices in bringing the text from one language into another. But as a rule, word-for-word translations put the most emphasis on recreating the format of the original. prose. Since they mimic the original text as closely as possible, word-for-word translations are the easiest way to examine what the Bible literally says. They reduce translator bias. This translation style focuses on preserving the words the author wrote instead of trying to interpret the concepts the author was trying to communicate. They make it easier to isolate specific Greek and Hebrew words and phrases for further in-depth study. They are ideal for evaluating core doctrinal beliefs. Cons some sentences might be hard to follow and understand at first glance. Prioritizing technical accuracy can sometimes rob a passage of its original tone and emotion. When idioms are preserved, like gird up the loins of your mind in 1 Peter one thirteen, the meaning can be confusing without additional research. Examples of word-for-word translations New King James Version, NKJV English Standard Version, ESV Berean Literal Bible BLB New American Standard Bible NASB New Revised Standard Version NRSV Thought for Thought Dynamic Equivalence The main focus of a thought-for-thought translation is preserving the intended meaning of the original text. This approach is sometimes called dynamic equivalence. In a thought-for-thought translation, the translators might use words or phrases not found in the original text but the ultimate goal is for readers of both the original text and the translation to understand the meaning in the same way. This might mean replacing idioms with phrases that would make more sense in English, or finding words that convey the meaning better than a literal translation would. However, to preserve the meaning of the original text, translators must understand the meaning of the original text. Unfortunately, biblical scholars have disagreed over the meaning of some verses for thousands of years, So it's entirely possible a translation team might attempt to preserve a meaning that was never there to begin with. Despite this additional wiggle room, most thought-for-thought translations are still very much tied to the original Greek and Hebrew texts, and many verses will be nearly identical to ones in a word-for-word translation, although it can be more difficult to tell which words in the translation correlate to the words in the original text. Prose. Thought-for-thought translations are typically easier to read and understand than word-for-word translations. They allow more of the feeling and tone of the original text to come through. They save the reader from having to decipher idioms. In 1 Peter 1 verse 13, the New Living Translation turns Gird up the loins of your mind into Prepare your minds for action. Cons There is more room for translator bias and human error. It can be harder to understand which Greek and Hebrew words are impacting each part of a given verse. They are less useful for evaluating doctrinal beliefs. Examples of thought-for-thought translations: New International Version (NIV), New Living Translation (NLT), Berean Study Bible (BSB), Christian Standard Bible (CSB). Paraphrase. The main focus of a paraphrase is making the original text easier to understand. Paraphrases frequently take advantage of poetic license in an attempt to take the concepts of the original text and present them in a way that a modern reader might find more relatable. This may come at the expense of certain concepts, place names, expressions, or trains of thought contained in the original. In some ways, a paraphrase is a more extreme version of thought for thought. Rather than anchoring themselves to the words and phrases of the original text, Paraphrases often rewrite entire passages of Scripture in an attempt to convey the feeling of the original text. While word-for-word and thought-for-thought translations are typically done with a team of translators working together, paraphrases can be the work of a single individual. Pros: Paraphrases are usually very easy to read. They can offer new angles for thinking about Scripture. Cons It is extremely difficult to separate the translator's interpretation from the author's original intent. The new angles require further study as they may be wildly inaccurate and cannot be taken at face value. Paraphrases are entirely unreliable as a means of evaluating doctrinal beliefs. Examples of paraphrases The Living Bible, TLB, The Message, MSG. An overview of the spectrum. That's the theory. Now let's get a feeling for what that spectrum looks like in practice. We'll use a snippet from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 8, verses 12-15 through 15, as an example, and see how it's rendered in a handful of different Bible translations. Here's how it's translated in the Berean Interlinear Bible. This sort of resource adheres as rigidly as possible to the format and structure of the Bible's original languages, which can make it a headache to read in English, but it can give us a sense of the material that other translations are working with. So then, brothers, debtors we are, not to the flesh, according to flesh to live. If for according to flesh you live, you are about to die. If, however, by spirit the deeds of the body you put to death, you will live. As many as for by spirit of God are led, these sons are of God. Not for you have received a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received spirit of divine adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Here it is in the new king james version a word-for-word translation therefore brethren we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for as many as are led by the spirit of god these are sons of god for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you receive the Spirit of Adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Here it is in the English Standard Version, another word-for-word translation. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here it is in the New International Version, a Thought for Thought translation. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Here it is in the New Living Translation, another Thought for Thought translation. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba, Father. Here it is in the Living Bible, a paraphrase. So, dear brothers, you have no obligations whatever to your old sinful nature to do what it begs you to do. For if you keep on following it, you are lost and will perish. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you crush it and its evil deeds, you shall live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so we should not be like cringing, fearful slaves, but we should behave like God's very own children, adopted into the bosom of His family, and calling to Him, Father, Father, and finally, here it is in the message, another paraphrase. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you have received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike What's next, Papa? How did they do? How are you supposed to decide which Bible is the right one? Can you trust them all equally? Just look at how different each of those translation styles is. And not only that, there are differences even between the Bibles that use the same translation style. The English Standard Version, which was translated more recently than the New King James Version and is less tied to the King James Version, swaps out antiquated words like brethren and bondage in the New King James Version for brothers and slavery and some of the sentences are a little easier to read. The New International Version adds brothers and sisters, which wasn't in the original text but clarifies the meaning of the Greek word being used and keeps us from mistakenly assuming that Christianity is for men only. The New Living Translation expands this to dear brothers and sisters, trying to show the warmth behind that phrase. Paul wasn't being formal and stiff, he was being affectionate. But the NLT misses a beat with what comes next. You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. The original Greek still emphasizes that we are debtors, which you can see in the New King James Version, English Standard Version and New International Version. But here, the New Living Translation leaves out that important detail, focusing exclusively on the fact that we are not debtors to the flesh. With the Living Bible, we see some editorializing. You are lost and will perish is more dramatic than you will die. The Living Bible also ignores mentioning the obligation we do have. Cringing, fearful slaves is an attempt to describe the spirit of bondage again to fear, but it glosses over how that spirit contrasts with God's spirit. The message, on the other hand, is barely recognizable when compared to the others. This paraphrase takes extreme liberties with the text, in an attempt to preserve the spirit and intent of the author while making it accessible to a modern audience. The problems are obvious. Important details disappear, putting sinful actions to death, the role of God's Spirit in that process, our potential to be children of God, while other details are added, things to do and places to go, adventurously expectant, old do-it-yourself life. The end result, whatever the intent, obscures important truths while introducing concepts not in the original verse. But, for all that, the message does capture one interesting aspect of the passage that the other translations miss. The word Abba is an Aramaic word that implies endearment, something a child would affectionately call his father, like daddy or papa. There is a tenderness in that phrase that the other translations don't capture. Which translation is best? That's a difficult question. And as you've probably realized by now, it's not a question with a single clear correct answer. We believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work 2 Timothy 3:16-17 The books of the Bible in their original form were divinely inspired and free from error but we're a long way from that original form and it's impossible to ignore the fact that once other people get involved errors can creep in Scribes copied biblical manuscripts for thousands of years with great precision, but sometimes they made mistakes. Sometimes they had to make edits to correct previous mistakes. Thankfully, because we have so many surviving manuscripts, we're able to check them against each other and spot many of those errors, edits, and even additions. Still, it's a reminder that the manuscripts themselves aren't perfect. Next, translators take those ancient manuscripts and turn them into something we can read But sometimes they have to choose between preserving the literal or intended meaning of the text. Sometimes they encounter words that can't be fully or succinctly translated into another language. Sometimes their own beliefs and preconceptions influence the words they choose. Here's an example from the passage we just referenced. When Paul said that all scripture is inspired by God, he used the Greek word theopnoustos, which literally means God-breathed. Some translations say inspired by God, while some say God-breathed. It's not that one choice is wrong and the other is right. Both are valid translations, and knowing both paints a clearer picture of what Paul was saying. In other words, translators have the impossible job of doing the best they can to transfer all the meaning and richness of not one but two primary languages into a third largely unrelated language. For all the reasons we've covered, and more, It's impossible to create a perfect translation of the Bible. But that doesn't mean there aren't some good, and even excellent, translations out there. What we use at Life, Hope, and Truth At Life, Hope, and Truth, we default to using the New King James Version. Unless we note it in the citation, that's our translation of choice. Does that mean you need to be using the New King James Version? If you aren't using it, are you doing something wrong? No. But we feel that the New King James Version strikes a good balance between accuracy and readability. It's a word-for-word translation, which makes it an ideal starting point for studying things like doctrinal beliefs with minimal translator bias. It's also a dependable translation. Generally, we find that we can use it to present a verse and make a clear point without requiring additional explanation from other sources. The New King James is generally not without issues. Generally is a key word in that last sentence. There are a few problems with the New King James Version, and it's important to be aware of them. It's important to be aware of issues with any translation, which is why taking the time to understand the Bible translation you're using is so important. The most obvious issue for the New King James Version is in 1 John chapter 5, verses 7-8, through which says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Unless you look at the New King James footnote, there's no way you could guess that most of that passage is widely acknowledged to not be part of the original text. A significant chunk of that passage is missing from the vast majority of manuscripts, and it wasn't until the 13th century that it started showing up in Greek manuscripts at all. The New American Standard Bible correctly translates 1 John 5, 7-8 without that insertion. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. That is a huge difference. But unless you're aware of it, it's not immediately obvious that the New King James Version has it wrong. Then there are verses like 1 John 3, 9, which reads, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Does this mean that if you sin even a single time as a Christian, you were never truly born of God? Or does it mean that no matter what you do as a Christian, nothing is considered sinful anymore? Actually, both those interpretations are wrong, because the New King James Version does a poor job translating the Greek verb tense here. Of course Christians sin. Being born of God doesn't change the fact that we are imperfect humans. The English Standard Version is much clearer in its translation. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If we are born of God, we don't make a habit of sinning. We don't continue in a sinful lifestyle. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, First John 1 verse8. The idea that a Christian cannot sin is fundamentally at odds with the rest of the Bible, but the New King James Version makes it sound like a fact. Again, Issues like these in the New King James Version are few and far between, but it's important to acknowledge they exist. If we treat the New King James Version or any single translation as the final authority on the Word of God, we're guaranteed to walk away with some inaccurate beliefs. General Principles for Selecting a Translation Here are some principles to keep in mind when evaluating your Bible translation options. Number one. A word-for-word translation leaves less room for translator bias. The farther we get from a literal word-for-word translation, the easier it becomes for translators to insert their own ideas about what the original Bible writers were trying to say. Sometimes this works well, bringing Scripture to life and offering valuable insight into otherwise difficult passages. But it can also warp the passage into saying or implying something that the original author, and God, did not intend. Although word-for-word translations don't always read as smoothly as other translation styles, they tend to offer purer insight into the actual words the author used. Of course, that means we have to put in the extra effort to understand the meaning. More on that in chapter 6. Number 2. A thought-for-thought translation makes a great secondary translation. You don't need to limit yourself to one single translation, or translation style. While we recommend using a word-for-word translation as your primary study bible, A thought-for-thought translation can make for easier reading and prompt you to study a new facet of a familiar verse. The book of Psalms and narrative passages especially tend to read differently when translated thought-for-thought. If a phrase or passage jumps out at you, that's a great opportunity to switch over to a word-for-word translation and inspect it. Number three, paraphrases aren't reliable. There's far too much room for error in the paraphrase style of translation and it doesn't hold itself accountable to the original text the way word-for-word and even thought-for-thought translations do. These Bibles might be interesting to take a look at, but they can also be inaccurate, misleading, and even damaging to our understanding of God's Word. Tread lightly here. Number 4. No translation is perfect Don't treat your translated Bible as the final authority on God's Word. When we come across passages that confuse us or challenge our beliefs, It may well be that God is trying to show us something, but it's worth taking a look at those passages in other translations to make sure we're not misunderstanding something. From there, we can launch into a deeper study. In chapter six, we explored some resources you can use to clarify things when you come across passages like these, and you will come across them. Number five, God's word is perfect. This is just as important to remember. The inspired word of God is perfect humans may have made mistakes along the way but the words that god inspired to be recorded are living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart hebrews 4 verse 12. it may take some effort on our part to make sure we're reading those words as accurately as possible but make no mistake the word of god is worth the effort